to begin, uh, just in 2014, a group of biologists uh, ran a PCR DNA amplification. PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction. Uh, DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. Uh, uh, I'm a physicist, not a biologist, so don't, don't hold me to all that. Um, so they ran this amplification on a number of samples to compare their genetic material. This is a standard biological procedure, so I'm told, um, and used every day in all sorts of scientific and forensic labs. The reason I bring up this particular case is because some of those samples that were tested were consecrated Eucharistic hosts that had been obtained surreptitiously from nearby Catholic churches. Setting aside the questionable method of obtaining uh, these hosts and the sacrilegious nature of the treatment of what Catholics hold most holy and dear, um, it's not the worst thing that's been done to the, to the Eucharist in the past. But, what the biologists were trying to show, arguing that they were going to show, is that once and for all, that the Eucharist is not the body of Christ. Uh, if Catholics believe in transubstantiation, uh, the most fundamental place that you can talk about the substance of something, they argued, must be the DNA. Uh, I'm sure Catholics claim that it still looks like and tastes like bread, uh, looks like and tastes like wine, but uh, if there's anything that's going to be changing, well, you go down to the smallest pieces, maybe the DNA is changing. Uh, and so they were going to, to test this and see. Uh, and so they ran this, uh, this test, and, and the results are here. If you haven't seen one of these before, I've seen about two in my life. Uh, so on the left, what, what, what you do is you take the sample, and you have what are called primers, uh, which are associated with particular types of DNA. And they cause that type of DNA to multiply uh, uh, the, the, those the, uh, 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 a lot. And therefore, you get sort of bold lines where you have matches to particular types of DNA. So on this half, they were, uh, the samples were primed with human-specific primers, things that are supposed to make uh, human DNA glow and show up on this test. Whereas this side had wheat-specific primers. Um, NC is a sample that has is basically nothing. Uh, there's no DNA in it at all, so you shouldn't see anything, which you don't. HC was a human control, so someone's human DNA uh, sample. WC was a wheat control, a unconsecrated host, and one through five were the various uh, consecrated hosts that they had obtained uh, from various Catholic churches. Uh, as you see on the left, um, oddly, the, the, the actual sort of, um, um, the wheat control actually shows some human DNA. Uh, apparently this, I mean, again, not a biologist, don't know, uh, but uh, <laughs> apparently when you're handling these things, if, if human DNA gets on there, it's actually not uncommon that you can transfer your own DNA to it, so um, biologists claim that, uh, to tell me that. So, but uh, if you notice, um, most of the consecrated hosts show almost no uh, 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 human DNA. This one has a little, has a little glow. But as you can see over here, all five of the samples show very strongly for wheat-specific primer, or for the wheat-specific DNA. Uh, so all of these hosts clearly had um, molecular structure of wheat and not the molecular structure of a human person. Um, so, okay, that's it. End of story. I'll go home. Uh, no. Um, the thing is, if you asked any Catholic priest or theologian or, or well-educated Catholic, however much they might object to actually doing this test, um, they would, hopefully, uh, all tell you that they, they would have been able to predict these results beforehand. In fact, uh, if they had seen human DNA showing up in there, and they would claim that as being miraculous, not the sort of miracle, the sort of, the sort of thing that we associate with the, um, uh, the Eucharist normally, but something sort of out of the ordinary, that there would be actual human DNA 
uh, in uh, um, the consecrated Eucharistic host. Those who ran the test, and, and many who commented on it, were aware of this Catholic position, but insisted that the, the attempt to get around that, um, by which they are referring to 2,000 years of philosophical and theological discussion and debate, are just a sort of philosophical weaseling. Um, what I, what I, the reason I bring this up is because there is, in general, just sort of a profound confusion about uh, the teachings of the Catholic Church on the Eucharist and transubstantiation, and even, honestly, among Catholics. It's not always the most well understood what exactly we mean when we say transubstantiation. Um, so I have been asked here to explain transubstantiation, which is a huge task. Uh, I would love to go into detail on the, the, the sublime way that Aquinas, for example, or the Church Fathers uh, explicate uh, what the Eucharist is, how it trans uh, the, the process of transubstantiation, all the different intimate details and debates. Um, like I said, it was one of my favorite topics to study, and sort of the particle physicist in me loves to think about sort of trying to crack open the hood and figure out what's going on on a philosophical and theological and even in a certain sense on a physical level there. Um, but I realize I need to limit myself to 40 minutes, so I am going to be quite selective. So the three things that I hope to do in this talk uh, is first to clarify... Uh, before even getting into the Eucharist, what it even means to explain something uh, in theology. Um, what it means to explain anything about the faith uh, and about theology from a Catholic perspective. What we can hope to say about any sort of mystery. Second, to clarify exactly what the doctrine of transubstantiation, uh, the sort of the, the basic level of, of, of description of what that doctrine is as expressed by the church, um, and third, to apply some of what we discussed in the first part, part about what it means to explain to head off some initial uh, objections to the doctrine, particularly those that might come from a more kind of scientific perspective. So uh, first, I, I want to talk about what it means to explain the faith. So the Catholic faith is a revealed religion, by which we mean that many of the truths of the faith are rooted in things that we believe God has revealed to us through the patriarchs and the prophets, through Jesus Christ, through the authors of the scriptures, and, and through the, the handed down in certain ways through the tradition of the church. Traditionally, now, some of the things that have been revealed, that show up in the scriptures, that show up in Revelation, are knowable by reason. Uh, in some cases, this is kind of obvious, like the, the fact that Jerusalem is on a hill. That's in the Bible. It mentions that. You can go to Jerusalem. You see it's on a hill. That can be known by observation and reason but it's also part of revelation in, in, in a certain way. So there is an overlap between the things that are revealed and things that we can come to know by our senses and by reason. Um, perhaps less obviously, there are, you know, that classically, uh, uh, most Catholic, or a lot of Catholics would argue that even things so far as the existence of God can be argued for and reasoned to simply by human reason without appeal directly to revelation. Um, that we can begin with uh, the things we know about the world around us and argue to the existence of God. So there is an overlap between the things that are revealed and the things that we can come to know on our own without God's help. Now, many of those things are hard to come to know on our own, and so it's good that God revealed them to us. But there's another class of, uh, of, of truths in, uh, in the faith that are beyond the things that we can know by human reason. Um, so for in the... the Classic example of this for, for Christians is the, uh, the notion of the Trinity, the idea that God is, uh, is, is three persons, that there is one God with three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is not something that 
you can reason to simply by, uh, by uh, or that you can get to simply by human reason, but something that God shared with us, that he wanted us to know about himself and opened uh, and, 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 and gave to us through uh, the scriptures and through the, um, the, uh, the New Testament and through the reflection of the church and the church councils. Now, the things that have been revealed that are beyond human reason, though, are not contradictory to human reason. It's not as if, uh, it's, it's not as if these are two completely isolated uh, ideas or uh, sources of truth where you have sort of um, uh, rational truth and you have the truth of faith and they sort of splay off in different, completely different directions. Human reason is a gift from God. The, the very revealer who opened our mind, who opened up the truths, the further truths to us that we get through revelation, through the, the, the prophets, through the scriptures. And so, properly speaking, God uh, is the source of both our reason and the source of revelation. And so, these, the truths that we get through one source of the other, when properly understood, should not contradict. As, as John Paul II, uh, Pope John, Saint Pope John Paul II, put it beautifully at the beginning of Fides et Ratio, Faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of the truth. We work together with these two aspects to understand more deeply uh, the, the truths in the world around us. So we can distinguish the things that are knowable uh, human, purely by human reason from those things that are knowable only by faith. But that's not the only sort of way that we relate faith and reason because we can also then, given truths that were beyond our reason on, uh, alone, we can still think about those truths. We can apply our reason to the things that have been revealed. We can read the scriptures and study them deeply. We can look at the, the, the reflection uh, of the church over centuries on all the different aspects of Revelation and build up a wonderful treasure and a, a wonderful, beautiful uh, image of uh, just how uh, just all that the Lord, uh, all that God has done for us all that has been given to us. Um, so uh, where exactly does the idea of explaining the faith fit into this? Well, it, it comes in different forms. It kind of depends on who you're talking to. Uh, if you're talking to uh, a Catholic, someone who accepts the truths of the Catholic faith, at least by intention, even if they don't understand or know all of them directly, so if you're talking to a child, uh, there's at least uh, an openness to the, 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 the authority and the teachings of the, of, of the faith, then we can talk about explaining the faith as laying out what are the things that God has revealed to us by looking at the scriptures, by looking at uh, that tradition, and, and through catechetical materials, which help to build up and summarize these things. Uh, and further, we can then uh, apply that reasoning that we get in, theolo- that in the, the great, most, most fully in theology to, to break open those truths and understand them more deeply. And we can explain those truths that, that you know, some people might know in an initial way and open them up to them and explain them more deeply. Uh, and this is you know, the, a great task uh, that's been done over the centuries to, to think deeply about what has been revealed. Uh, uh, through the effort of so many uh, saints and theologians and, and regular people and aided and supported by the guidance of the church uh, as a whole. Now, if we're speaking to uh, a non-Catholic Christian, so someone who accepts the, uh, the, co- the common authority of the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, um, then, well, there's at least that commonality that we can begin with. So um, there's a lot that we share um, but there's also then a lot of tools that we, there are a lot of sources that we might not completely agree on. 
And so if we're going to try to explain the faith to someone who shares a, a respect for the scriptures, um, then we can begin our argument from there, but we wouldn't necessarily begin our argument from the, directly from the teaching or the writings of a pope or, or one of the, the, the church councils. If that's not a commonly held source of authority, then we need to sort of step back and say, okay, where, where do we agree? Where can we begin that conversation? If we're talking to uh, someone who believes in God, but perhaps not in the, the, uh, the revelation uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ, well, there's still common principles about the idea of God, about who, um, God as creator, perhaps, God as one who loves us and knows it. So we can begin with those principles and argue. Now, again, we're, we're, there's less that we can say starting from those principles, but there's still something that we can share and argue for. So we can explain the faith in some way and begin to, to, to lay out those principles. And even for someone who doesn't even accept the idea of God, we can begin from simply human reason. Now, again, we cannot hope to begin there and get everything back that we started with. We're not going to begin from human reason and explain in, the way that is, in, a, in a way that is incontrovertible, in a way that is absolutely proven simply by human reason, all the, the beautiful mysteries of the Catholic faith that have been handed down over the centuries. But we can at least hope to argue and have confidence that we should be able to argue that the truths of the faith, the things that that whole picture, that whole beautiful picture that has been handed down is not contrary to reason. We, have, we should at least be able to argue that whatever objection uh, that uh, someone who does not, you know, whatever objection someone raises to one of the, the claims or truths of the faith we should be able to explain that at least that objection isn't airtight. There's at least an opening in that objection uh, to say, okay, you're misunderstanding something, or you're misunderstanding something of the faith, or something of about how we understand and know the world. Now, um, there should be a way to at least make the claim, uh, uh, to, to argue that the claims of the faith are at least possible, right? Um, now, this is the initial level at which I hope to discuss the Eucharist. In some senses, it seems like it's not a lot, but it's, it's in a certain sense the foundation from where we have to start. And I think it's helpful even for those who, uh, who believe in the Eucharist, those Catholics who have, uh, uh, take the authority of the church uh, um, uh, on, uh, 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 who, who trust in the authority of the church and in the wisdom of the saints over the ages, to at least double check and make sure it's not impossible. Because uh, there's a way in which to, to, to clarify our own understanding to say yes, this is, a, this is a reasonable and a rational and, not, and, 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 and beautiful thing to believe. So, given that, um, I want to shift into talking about transubstantiation. And uh, so the, the, the way I want to proceed is to simply take the most sort of uh, a recent and, well, okay, relatively recent uh, uh, explanation of what transubstantiation is as presented by the Catholic Church. This is, comes from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Now it's actually quoting from the Council of Trent from the 16th century. Um, but it's a concise and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, one paragraph description of what transubstantiation is. But I want to start to peel that open a little bit to understand what is going on. So the, the, the statement is, because Christ, our Redeemer, said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God that this holy council and this holy council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine there takes place a change 
of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. So there is a lot there. Um, it begins with an opening referring to sort of the sources and history of this belief, but I want to focus on really just uh, two primary words uh, that, 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 that come up. Uh, the, the words highlighted here. So one appears once, the other appears several times. The idea of species, that, uh, the, that it was his body that he was offering under the species of bread, and the idea of substance. For several times, the whole substance of bread into the substance of the body, and the whole substance of wine into the substance of his blood. And I want to just focus on those words because I think those are words that are often misunderstood. Um, and, and it's important to recognize, okay, if, uh, to recognize what exactly the, these words mean in this context. Now, I mean, in one sense, species and substance are a relatively familiar word. Um, you know, species probably calls to mind biological species. Uh, you know, the different uh, uh, animals uh, and plants each, you know, each fall into their species. Uh, and substance probably calls to mind stuff. The stuff stuff is made of. Um, so substance has sort of some sort of underlying muck that makes things up, uh, or maybe not perhaps muck, but the the the, the undergirding of, of of things. Now, these are. These are not the exact frame in which these terms are, are understood, would have been understood when the Council of Trent was first, uh, was first writing this, and as the Catholic Church has continued to express these. Um, and so I want to clarify a little bit what these two terms mean. So first, species. So uh, the species uh, refers to the impression which some external object in the world makes upon some cognitive faculty. There's a lot there. Uh, so we're talking, when we say cognitive faculty, that's generally speaking any sort of faculty that, uh, uh, or a, a faculty either of the senses or of the intellect. So it's the way in which um, uh, you know, my sight, my feeling, my taste are all cognitive faculties. They're a way in which I, I interact with the world. And from what I receive through my senses, I can think about um, uh, the various uh, uh, um, uh, sensory species that I receive and form sort of intellectual species on top of that. It's the way that something out there becomes present to our senses or our intellect. So the species is the way that things in the world appear to us, and particularly the, the, in a certain sense the, the act of appearing to us in a particular way. Now there is a whole lot of theological baggage around species and debates, and so I don't want to get into all of that, but just that initial basic notion of species as the way in which something outside of us appears to us, first in the senses, first in, you know, uh, in, in, in the sight, in taste, in touch, uh, and, and then more, more uh, late, later in the intellect. And arguably even sort of indirect modes in which those things might affect us. So we can talk about Say you know that I can uh, if I you know I, I can look at that chair directly. I can feel the chair. I could take a picture of the chair, and there's a way in which I sort of know there's something of the chair there. Now there's, um, but even if we were thinking in a scientific mode, you could talk about sort of tools and instruments to measure properties of the chair. 
You know, I may not be directly looking at uh, the, um, you know, um, s say the chemical structure of, uh, of what's going on in the chair in an in a, uh, MR machine, but I'm using a machine that is affecting my senses, that machine is interacting with the object. There's a way in which there's some, something about that physical object is impacting other physical objects and eventually impacting my senses. There's a way in which the species still has this notion of how do things in the world eventually impact uh, our, uh, our ability to sense first and then to, to think about things. So that's the, 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 the idea of species. So when we talk about the, um, uh, what he was, uh, was offering under the species of bread, that means that the, the, what was being offered had the appearance of bread. And with that, everything that comes with, with the appearance of bread, how it tastes, how it, um, uh, how it looks, and even how it nourishes, the things bread does uh, as bread, that in eating it, it gives me some sort of nourishment and some uh, becomes, becomes eventually part of it. Now, substance is alternatively the, the, the thing in reality itself that somehow sort of stands under those species. So substance stands, uh, from the Latin, to stand <clears throat> under something. So substance as the thing in reality, as it actually is. Um, there is, uh, there are you know, debates among philosophers over the ages about what things are substances and, and, and the, the, the idea of substance, but there's, the, the, the important distinction we're talking about is the distinction between the thing as it is in reality and the appearance of the thing um, at, when I receive it into my senses. Now, in nature, these two things are extremely closely connected. So, I look and I see uh, a small brown and white furry object with a bushy tail that uh, eats really rapidly and runs around and jumps on trees. Um, and, and all of these are things I'm receiving in my senses. I'm seeing sort of the general shape, the size. I can, I can recognize the furriness. If he lets me get close enough, I could feel the furriness before he bites me, and then, then I would feel the pain. Um, and I see that, and I've seen things like this enough that I can then reason to the fact that this is a squirrel. Like, I know this is a squirrel. I know that underlying the sort of the collection of, uh, 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 or, or underlying the, the impact this thing has on my senses is uh, uh, a thing. In this case, we know we have a name for that thing. It's a, it's a squirrel. Um, and so there's a, uh, there's, a, there's a deep connection between species and substance. It is through species, through the way that things impact our senses, that we know what those things are. And it's through the species that we can distinguish what those things are, distinguish one thing from another. So if I see, uh, um, if I see a, a, a much larger object uh, uh, with stripes and really big sharp teeth, I'm like, okay, that's a tiger, that's not a squirrel, so I, would, I want to react to that differently. Uh, there's a way in which um, uh, um, the, the, the substance is, is made known to us through the species. It's also important to recognize that, right, that the species, the way that object affects us, can change over time. This squirrel was probably not always, well, definitely not always this big. It started out much smaller, it grew in size. It changed its, its shape, it changed perhaps uh, its, its coloring, it got bigger. Um, uh, lots of things have changed about it over the course of its lifetime, but it's the same thing. It's the same squirrel throughout all of that. Uh, and so this idea is that uh, the, the species in a thing can change, the way the thing presents itself can change, uh, but there can be a continuity of the substance underneath that. Now, 
If the species change enough, though, that's a pretty good sign that something else has changed, more fundamental. So if I see something that looks kind of like this, but is a lot flatter uh, and is not running around uh, and, and has a trail of, 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 of uh, unfortunate red gooey stuff next to it, I'm pretty sure that that is not a living squirrel anymore. That's an unfortunate used-to-be squirrel that's now uh, decaying into something else. Uh, so there's a way in which if it's, it's, as the species change, there is, uh, it can be a sign that something underlying it is changing. Um, the important thing to say, see, is that this deep connection between what things are and how they appear to us uh, is, is fundamental to how we think about the world, right? That, that it's through how things appear to us that we know that they are there, know how they change, know how they relate to, what, uh, 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 relate to each other. Um, and so it's, uh, and this, this can be difficult, right? It's not always exact. Um, you know, how do we know exactly, you know, the, the line between, you know, uh, you know say, say our squirrel had a, a less unfortunate end and just got sick somehow. And how, what's the line between, you know, really, really sick squirrel and dead squirrel? It's, and these, these things can be difficult. Um, there are ways in which the, the, the species aren't exact uh, tools to know what's going on in the substance, but they're the only tools we have. Um, so that's, that's what happens in nature, this deep connection between what a species is, like the, between what a substance is and the way it presents itself to us. In transubstantiation, what we are told is that under the same species, it was truly his body. That in the consecration of bread and wine, there is a change that takes place, but not a change of the species, not a change of the way the thing presents itself to us, but a change in the underlying reality, a change in the, 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 the thing that undergirds the way that thing presents itself to us. And the, 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 the doctrine of transubstantiation is that the whole substance of bread, the whole reality of bread, is no longer there. And what is there is the substance of the body of Christ, the reality of the body of Christ. Uh, and similarly, that the substance, the whole substance of wine is no longer there, but the substance of the blood of Christ. Now, it's important to recognize that uh, if no one had ever, if no one had ever celebrated a mass and no one had ever consecrated the Eucharist, Christ's body and blood would exist. As Catholics, we believe that he rose from the dead and that body exists in its proper form as a human body uh, with, uh, you know, however, you know, a normal size, a normal shape, a normal functioning. Glorified, there's extra complications there. It's a wonderful topic. I don't, but I, I uh, it's, so for, for Catholics, what we are saying is that this, this body that is, pre, that, that is properly present in uh, Christ as he is living, resurrected today, uh, is actually made present, is actually really present, the substance of that body is really present to us under the appearance of bread and wine. Normally, Christ's body has the appearance, the species of a human body, because that's what it, it naturally should have. It has the species of uh, a man of a certain height, with a certain hair color, with a certain facial features, uh, and, and it has that, those species 
normally. In, 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 the, in the, the mystery of the Eucharist, that substance is really present without its normal species, without the, the, the species of the, the appearance of a human body, but with the species of the bread and, and, and the wine that was present before. Now, uh, this is counterintuitive, like by definition. Our intuition is that species tell us about the reality underneath. So when I see something that looks like bread and tastes like bread, it is bread. Um, that, is how, that is how our intuition, our, our, our senses normally work. So um, it, it is not by our senses that we know this. It takes an act of faith, an act in believing the truth brought to us by revelation to have confidence that this is, that this is what actually happened, that underneath the, the, the appearance of bread and wine, there truly is the body of Christ. Um, this is not natural, right? This is contrary to the normal working of nature. But God, who is the creator and sustainer of, of nature, of every substance, of every being, and undergirds the very power that beings have to appear to us, that is actually active and present when anything appears to us, as undergirding the nature and the power of things to impact us, to, uh, uh, to, to, to appear to us, and the, the power of our senses to receive and, and be impacted by the things in the world. He who is active and undergirding all of that normally and holding it as normal order can, if he chose, in his omnipotence, change that order, such that a thing, uh, such that the appearance of something does not actually correspond to the, to the substance, the reality that's un, that underlies it. This is unscientific. Uh, by definition, what we do in science is deal with species. All of our tools in science deal with the appearance of things, the measurements we can make in the, uh, uh, in the, physical, in the physical world. From there, we reason to the realities beyond there. We have confidence that we know things about the physical world because of the confluence of these measurements, the confluence of how carefully we have thought about and, 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 and hashed over what, the, what these species are. Um, so, but we never have direct access to substance as such. It's always through the mediation of some sort of measurement that we get to some knowledge of the reality underneath. The mediation of something of our senses that we understand the reality of underneath. We have confidence in that reality because of that close connection. Uh, but there is, but these we, these are distinct ideas and distinct, I would argue, things in reality as well. That the thing that underlies and the way that it impacts us are 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 are, are can be can can be distinguished uh, in in reality. Um, so we. Um, so this is a lot to take. Uh, if this is not something you've heard before, if this is not something that you've been taught as a Catholic or, or, or even if a Catholic and have heard it, it's, it's a lot to, to take. Why? Why do we believe this? Why do we make these claims? Why has there been so much ink spilled over the subject? In short, uh, we take seriously the words of Jesus Christ. As uh, it says in, uh, in the Council of Trent, because Christ said that it was truly his body that he was offering. That is the beginning of all of our reasoning on this. So in, in, in the scriptures, in the Last Supper, Christ told us, this is my body. 
We, we look to the witness of Paul in 1 Corinthians, the witness of the early church, beginning with the Didache and leading to the church fathers, this sort of consistent teaching that's de- been developed and clarified over centuries. So there are, there is, this is counterintuitive, this is not natural, and yet there is a real grounding in Revelation to give us hope and confidence in this. So at this point, there are tons of objections. Tons and tons of possible objections. Uh, perhaps uh, you could say, okay, look, I, I, I believe in the New Testament. I believe, it, I, 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 I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love him, but that's not what he meant. Uh, that's, not, that's not what he meant when, at the Last Supper. That's not what he meant in John chapter 6. There are lots of ways in which you could have an argument from the scriptures about, okay, what exactly is Christ saying here? Um, you can draw on the, the, the reflection that Christians have had on the scriptures and why the Catholic Church in particular takes this so serious in this particular way. So that's a type of conversation that you could have. You could also simply say, look, okay, uh, maybe, maybe I, don't, um, uh, I, I, I don't believe in the New Testament. I don't believe in our Lord Jesus, in, in Jesus Christ. Uh, I believe in God, but seriously, God wouldn't allow that. Why would God do that? Um, so we could have an argument about, okay, why is it that God would would do this in the first place. How is this fitting to God as one who created us and loved us and wants to, to reveal them, wants to, to give us a share of his love? Why this particular mode of sharing that love? And, and we could talk about who God is and why there's a fittingness to this, the, the, this beautiful sharing that he has in the Eucharist. Uh, perhaps you could argue, look, this is simply not possible because, well, God doesn't exist. So you're claiming that you need some infinite omnipotent power to do this unnatural thing. That infinite omnipotent power doesn't exist. Well, that's a whole other conversation about does God exist? Apparently we had a talk on this earlier. So uh, I'm not going to go down that road. So but that's a whole other sort of layer of conversation to be had around here, uh, uh, around uh, uh, the Eucharist. But perhaps you could simply say, look, this is not possible. Even if God did exist, even if God were, were omnipotent, he couldn't do this. This would be impossible because the very concept of this, this separation, this distinction, is irrational and impossible. And that's kind of where I want to focus for the, for the rest of the talk. Um, there's a couple of forms that this could take. So, I mean, what, what, I, uh, so what I mean is the, the, you know, the argument that the very idea of species versus substance is uh, outdated. This is, you know, the language of the church dating back to uh, uh, you know, uh, well, it, uh, the, the 10th century, uh, you know, uh, in different forms earlier, uh, being sort of crystallized and developed in, the, in the, the 10th century, being sort of classically put together by uh, Aquinas in, in, in the, 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 the 13th century. Um, but that's before the scientific revolution. That's before we really knew what was going on in the world. We just think about the world differently. We don't talk about species and substance. This is outdated uh, and useless and kind of incoherent. So it is true, as I said, that the idea of species and substance are unfamiliar. You don't, these, in this context, they don't show up in your, in, in your biology textbook, your physics textbook. And they are kind of unfamiliar to modern ears. But the ideas are not, and including the distinction between them and the way that we distinguish what something is from the way it appears to us. They are, in fact, recognized at most fundamental levels of science, including my, my own favorite, uh, in, in, in physics. In quantum mechanics, right, there is a hard distinction between the things that we measure and the wave function that, underla- that, that underlies them. 
the wave function uh, 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 the, the wave function uh, uh, is uh, prob- or, or, or uh, evolves uh, deterministically, but only tells us about probabilities, uh, the probability of certain uh, measurements being made. Then we actually look at something, and one of those possibility, one of the various possibilities happens, uh, but we don't know which one. It's only when we look at a bunch that we can sort of confirm that our, that our understanding of the wave function, um, uh, the probabilities that the wave function is telling us actually correspond to what's going on. And we can make very uh, precise and amazing um, uh, uh, measurements using this. Uh, but even here, there is this distinction, right? There is, in fact, a very much a debate among physicists, or at least philosophers uh, who, think about, who think deeply about physics, about what really is there. There's the measurements, which everybody agrees on, that the experiments are going to work, the, exper- the results of the experiments, at least in the sense of the probability of certain, the, the, the rate at which certain things happen, that, those are, that there's going to be agreement on how that works. And yet there's sort of debate about what is underlying, the, uh, what, what really is there, um, and even if there really is anything there, whether it's even possible to talk about that. Um, we don't talk about species and substance, uh, but there is, in fact, this sort of intellectual distinction, and even a recognition that one of these things is in some way inaccessible to us scientifically. That we, that we don't have a tool to measure some aspect of reality uh, uh, directly. We have, to, we have to measure it indirectly through, properly speaking, measurements. Uh, that there's something about reality we can infer but don't have direct access to. Um, and in fact, I mean, quantum mechanics has its own sorts of scientific, scientific, like properly scientific, counterintuitive to things, counterintuitive claims to make about these species and how they relate to that reality. Uh, but the main point I want to describe is that right, there's, there is something of this distinction. Now, okay, so even if you admit that, okay, well, but that's the level of atoms and particles. Uh, some might claim that, okay, even if we can talk about something like a distinction between species and substance at that level, there's no such thing as the substance of bread or the substance of Christ's body. Uh, or in a certain, I mean, if, if we make the argument that everything is simply reducible to atoms or molecules or particles or whatever, but, you know, whatever small layer you want to talk about, um, then it's not, there's no sense in talking about the substance of something larger, like bread or wine or you or me. So that's all other topic. And yet even here, if we, if we look at how scientists argue and, 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 and apply these, these things, if we look at um, what, in all honesty, was my, my least favorite topic in physics, statistical mechanics and thermodynamics, uh, I, I love particle physics because I can think about like three particles at a time. As soon as you get to, as soon as you get thermodynamics and all of the different, you know, the, the interaction of all these different particles, it gets way too complicated for me. Uh, but uh, the idea is that, you know, there are many uh, clearly observed, like, Phenomenon that we experience in nature that are clearly uh, explained and understood using quantum mechanics, using that sort of most fundamental lowest layer, um, but that are only properly understood in what's called the the thermodynamic limit. So examples of this are uh, things like temperature, things like certain aspects of chemical structure, even, and then certain phase transitions or certain examples. So the transitioning from ice, you know, of water, so ice to water to vapor, or things like uh, ferromagnets or superconductors. The way that we model these is by going to the thermodynamic limit, where we presume 
that there is that that that, that there are um, there is a infinite number of particles uh, involved in the thing we're thinking about. You know, we can try to model these using simply a finite number of particles, right? If I have this bottle of water, there are a finite number of uh, um, um, a finite number of water molecules in this bottle. But to properly, you know, even with the most power, power like mathematically, even with the most powerful computer, uh, I couldn't model properly the transition from water to ice, from water to ice, or water to, to, to water vapor by a finite number of, uh, of individual molecules. It requires the thermodynamic mission, uh, limit to make these sort of hard phase transitions that we s clearly see happening in reality. This is a whole debate completely unrelated to transubstantiation that, 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 that comes up in chemistry, quantum chemistry, and philosophy of chemistry about this, this how we understand this, this conundrum. Um, it's, there, there seems to be something qualitatively different about the way that we have to analyze things at the, the larger level than at the, than at the, the lower level. It's not that, um, it's not that the, the, we, we ignore the fact that it's made of, of hydrogen molecules, but there's something about the substance as a whole, the substance about the, the, the overall interaction of those water molecules that's different at this larger scale at this thermodynamic limit where we actually can see and properly model the, um, uh, the effects that we're used to in nature that we just can't model if we start trying to treat everything like a bunch of little particles, uh, a bunch of finite little particles. Um, the argument here being that, okay, there's something about this, this uh, people, yeah, there's different ways people try to, to argue about is this, uh, argue about this connection, uh, this, this distinction. But arguably what we're seeing here is there is, some species, some appearance of an object that is not absolutely and completely reducible to the fact that it's made up of a certain number of individual particles floating around. And there's something about it at the scale that we're used to dealing with it that's different and new. And it's properly to talk to, it's, it's more proper to talk about that, that effect, whether it's you know, the way in which that water flows versus being in crystallized in ice versus being in a vapor, that is more proper to talk about as a, 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 to, to the whole rather than to the individual molecules. There's something about water as as collection of water that we can talk about as, as being the proper ground for this particular species, this particular way the object affects us. And we can make try to make similar arguments going up. I mean, if we get into uh, biological structures but have sort of unity and coherence and, um, uh, and, and hold themselves together and, and, and metabolisms, there's a whole layer there. It's like, okay, is this completely explainable simply by the chemistry? And there's debates about that. So the, the argument I'm trying to make is that even looking at the best science, there is the opening for this idea of substance at various layers. The idea that the things that we observe in the world can be seated at, at different, uh, can be, are, uh, have, have things that undergird them that, is, that are not simply reducible all the way down to, to particles. That it, it could very well be proper to talk about the substance of bread. And more importantly, in certain ways, the substance of you. That you are a human being, a substance, uh, a, a coherent whole. Um, and similarly, that Jesus Christ would be a coherent whole, a substance uh, that, is, uh, that is his physical body. So, uh, so, what, I, what I'm arguing here is that these scientific considerations at least open the door to that, to that proper distinction, and I would argue you could go further, uh, between substance and species uh, at, at, at various levels. 
And although these terms are philosophical in some sense, that they are, uh, they, they are rooted in philosophy, it's not simply weaseling, as, as, as uh, the philosophical, philosophical weaseling is uh, described in the introduction. That there's something about them that, that corresponds to reality. Now, of course, the fact that these concepts of species and substance are present in modern science, even if the terminology isn't, in no way proves that, that transubstantiation actually happens. At best, it simply argues that it's not logically impossible. Now, it may have seemed that I spent uh, 45 minutes and a lot of effort to get to a very weak conclusion, that this isn't impossible. Uh, but it's the starting ground. From here, we can then say, okay, if this is not impossible, is there a God that can do, that is omnipotent and can do things that are not impossible? Uh, can do anything that's not impossible if he wanted to. Now, if there is that God, would he want to do this? Why would he want to do this? And if he, if he would possibly want to do this, is this actually what Jesus Christ asked, uh, told us he would do and does do and continues to do to this day? So it is from this foundation that we can sort of build up the layers that get up to the reality of transubstantiation. Again, whatever, uh, and so again, but why, again, that's taken 40 minutes and there's still a long way to go. Why, why go to all this effort? So whatever you may believe, whatever you may think about this, just imagine for a moment that God exists. Imagine for a moment that God really did so love the world that he sent his only son, that whoever might believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. That this son was equal to him in divinity and chose to become a human being and live among us. Imagine for a moment that this son, Jesus Christ, really meant what he said at the Last Supper. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Imagine that we have the opportunity to be near to him, to God, to Jesus Christ, God made man, in a most profound way whenever we enter a Catholic church where the Eucharist is reserved. More profoundly than any other religion has ever claimed our connection to God. Even more profoundly than, than the presence that would be described in the Old Testament, uh, in, in, in the temple. Imagine that we have the opportunity to receive God in that presence into our very bodies. And through that, inherit that share in eternal life, that share in the very life of God himself, a foretaste of the fullness of all that we hope for, all that he promises that we will receive in heaven. That may seem like a lot to swallow. Sorry, that's a bad Catholic joke there. Um, <laughs> as Catholics, we believe that this amazing gift is exactly what God has promised us. A gift so wonderful that we want nothing more than to share it with everyone. And if that requires great effort to clear away confusion, our first of all, our own, uh, and most especially that perceived impossibility, if, if, uh, if it requires great effort to clear the path, uh, it is more than worth it. If it takes all that effort simply to make the very idea of the, uh, of the Eucharist possible, to make it even slightly uh, uh, more palatable, it is more than worth it. So I hope uh, that today I have begun that first step in clearing whatever uh, difficulties may have begun, you know, or may, whatever difficulties may have been, you may have had about 
what exactly the church teaches about transubstantiation and what it is and why uh, and, and how it is that it is uh, uh, truly and actually possible that God could do this. Thank you. So I went a little. So I, uh, I don't know. Got a little bit of time for questions if people want. Um, so you know, like I said I, I focused on a very small piece of this. If you have other bigger questions, or you expected me to say something different, uh, or if you have quite other other questions related to the Eucharist or anything else like that, I'd be happy to try to answer those off the cuff. Yes. Yes, Father. I cannot remember the name for this specific dogma. Um, but I was asked about this a few months ago mm-hmm. Drew of the Lake. Mm-hmm. How is it that the substance of each mm-hmm. of the body and blood of Christ yes. can be in each species? Yes. So um, the so um, if you look carefully at the the quote from um, uh, the Council of Trent, what it says is that the whole substance of bread. Because, uh, 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 the change is the whole substance of bread into the substance of the body, uh, the body of Christ and the whole substance of wine into the substance of the blood. Now, there is a traditional saying, which actually comes also from the Council of Trent, that in the Eucharist, really and truly present are the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so we, as, as Catholics, believe that all of these are, uh, are truly present. But... Uh, particularly uh, uh, Aquinas would make a distinction here that one of them is present by way of the sacrament and the rest are present um, uh, uh, by what he calls natural concomitants. So I'm going to try to make, uh, try to clarify that slightly. So um, you are a human being, right? Each one of you is a human being. Each of you has a body. Uh, I hope so. I can see a lot of them here. Um, each of, all of you have blood. Uh, I, at least I'm pretty sure of that because you're still functioning and, and I mean, you may be falling asleep, but you're, you're at least here. So that's a bodily function. You need blood to, to sleep. Um, so, and there is a, a natural union of body and blood. Obviously, we can distinguish the blood from the muscle, but there is there's a way in which the blood suffuses the body and is not completely coterminous with it, but it, it, it covers a lot of the same space. Wherever there is part of our flesh, the blood is not too far away and vice versa. Um, at least if they are, that's a problem. Um, in addition, uh, you have a human soul. Uh, you are a human being uh, with, uh, with, with a soul, and that soul is um, in a certain way present everywhere in you. Uh, it's not as if the soul is only present in, say, the pineal gland, as Descartes might have argued, uh, or only present in my little pinky, because that'd be weird, or my toe. Everywhere that, I am a, everywhere that my body is and is living, the soul is present. You can talk about it, sort of, f- certain functions. You know, my sight is seated in the eye. My, my speech, which I've been using too much, is seated in the mouth. But there's a way in which my soul, my, the, the principle of being alive, is everywhere in me. So wherever my body is, my soul is. And wherever my body is not, my soul is not. So, uh, in addition, Jesus Christ is uh, God. We believe that he is uh, the uh, God incarnate, that he has a particular type of union between his divinity and his humanity, such that there's a particular way that when he walked along earth, he truly embodied God in a particular way. So in Jesus Christ, normally, uh, when he lived on earth and now as he lives glorified in heaven, 
the body, the blood, the soul, and the divinity are all united. Uh, they're all relatively coterminous. Again, the body and blood is a little bit, but they're, 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 they're all sort of in the same place. So the way the argument, the way that, that uh, it's traditionally understood is that by making the body present sacramentally, that is, they're the substance, sorry, making the substance of the body present sacramentally, since that is not like a copy of Christ, that's not a piece of Christ, that's not a piece of Christ's body, that's not a copy, it's, it's the whole of Christ's body present in, under the species of, 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 of the Eucharist um, in a way that's not natural, that is, that is supernatural, but present there. And if that is present, since, the action, since his substance in, in its proper existence in his body as glorified is also united to the blood, the soul, and the divinity, those three are, pre- are, are, are present with the body that is made, there, that is made present sacramentally. That's a lot to swallow. I'm going to say that. So I didn't. I didn't want to start there, just because. Again, it's the sort of thing where if I went to my, you know, uh, uh, agnostic or atheist physics friends, start talking about real concomitance, uh, it's it's there's a lot of background to get to that conversation. But it's it's one. It's it's a beautiful insight and image into our devotion as well. Um, and so this is one of the aspects of the study of the Eucharist that I found so fascinating is the depth to which the philosophical groundings actually undergird and even in, in certain ways amplify the devotional aspect of how we pray and understand uh, the Eucharist. So that was a long-winded question. So the short answer is real concomitance. That's the, that's the word. And that's kind of what that means. That's the uh, rough uh, estimate. Thank you. Bob. Yep. Yeah. Thanks for the talk. Yeah. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, I, have a, I have a question about um, demarcating Levels, the proper mm-hmm. levels at which to look things, and yes. then a follow-up question to that. Okay. So, how does one? You've established that um, there are various levels at which we should be conceptualizing species, yes, um, or even substances. Mm-hmm. How does one know where those boundaries lie? And that kind of leads to the follow-up question, which is: Is the process of trying to figure out where those boundaries lie more belonging to revelation, reason, or an overlap of the two? Because you, you mentioned sure. those earlier, yeah. So I would I would argue that everything I said in general about substance and species, um, when I wasn't specifically talking about transubstantiation, would f- sorry the second question first would fall under the under the aspect of reason. Um, there is a role for science in this, for helping us to understand those layers, and a role for philosophy in clarifying uh, certain aspects of what physics and chemistry and biology are doing. Um, so by those you know, tools of human reason, we can begin to see something of those layers. So uh, for instance, uh, so, then, so how do we... Um, uh, identifying those, you know, what, what, so like what, at what level should we talk about a substance, right? Yeah. So, you know, so I have water in the glass, I have water in my stomach, uh, in a few minutes there'll be water sort of dispersed uh, into my bloodstream. So there is, you know, you know, if you remember from high school uh, or, or, or elementary school, the body is 80, 90% water. Sorry, I mean, this is just, I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of water. That water, um, that is that is part of me, is you know, uh, is properly speaking, the, the reason that water can do what it does is because it is um, proper way made of hydrogen and oxygen bonded in certain ways. That if I if we sort of 
took out that water and looked at it as an individual molecule. I could talk about the, the relationship of the hydrogen, uh, hydrogen and oxygen molecules, the angle between the bonds and things like that. Um, it, in part, it acts, uh, it, it does what it needs to do to keep me alive because of the properties it has as liquid water, which as I was, I was arguing is properly uh, applied to kind of uh, a larger collection of water than simply individual molecules. So the reason it does this is because it's, it's you know, we, we, when we pull out individual molecules, we can see all these other aspects of what's going on that feeds into what's going on at the larger, larger scale. And then it ends up acting in me in particular ways because of how it happens to be related to all of the other cellular structures and, and the way in which it, um, the, the way in which it is the, the solvent by which so many different uh, uh, cellular and biological processes happen. And so there is, there are sort of things water is doing as part of me that are, that are different than what water is doing uh, um, in the glass. Now, I can model and simulate pieces and parts of that in the lab in certain ways, but I would argue, and this is, this is a further philosophical argument that's not core to the aspect of transubstantiation, but I would argue that you can say that there is something different about water, that properly speaking, the water that is part of me is properly me. I am me through and through. I am, I'm a human person through and through. But I, 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 um, I, we, that there are sort of, we can talk about the parts that go into me. I can talk about, you know, my liver and my heart and my, my kidneys. I can talk about my cells. I can talk about pieces and parts of me, but properly, and, and, and even, you know, we can pull those things out and look at them under the microscope, but when we pull them out and look at them under the microscope, they're no longer actually part of me anymore. Um, so there's something about them as part of me that's unique and properly seated in who I am as a substance. It's not unrelated to what happens to them isolated in the lab, and it depends upon what happens to them isolated in the lab, but there's sort of a new layer that's added when they become part of a, a larger whole. Now, exactly how many layers there are, so I described sort of atoms, uh, molecules, particles going down. Uh, I talked about sort of a collection of water. You could talk about um, you know cells. You could talk about, there are lots of possible layerings of these things, and it's, it's an interesting philosophical puzzle, and there are debates among people that, 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 that use this language and talk about this, about how many layers there are and where those layers uh, where, the, where, where they are. I tend to prefer the idea of there being lots of layers um, so that we can talk about the substance of a rock, the substance of bread, the substance of wine, the substance of, I mean, I think traditionally those substances, like the, the classical examples of the substance would be living things because they show a unity and wholeness. They have an activity that, you know, the squirrel does stuff. I want to talk about the squirrel. Um, I do things. Living things are sort of the, the classical primary example of substances. Um, and the other one is sort of, quote unquote, the elements, the smallest stuff. In between, I would argue there has to be lots of the layers as well. So how many is an open question that is sort of partly scientific and partly philosophical? Again, long-winded, but I hope that helps. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Um, I was just wondering uh, why do you think that it's important that transubstantiation takes place as opposed to other interpretations? That sure. Have? No, um, I. That's a very good question. Um, So, um, part of this comes from a, 
Yeah. A, a short answer to this would say uh, would be that if transubstantiation does not take place, if that does not actually happen when I celebrate Mass as a Catholic priest, um, then uh, a lot of people have been wrong for millennia. Which, okay, turns out that happens. Well, people have been wrong before. There's a way in which um, not only a lot of people, but I would argue uh, Jesus Christ himself and uh, through him uh, and through the scriptures that there is, there is something in error in what God has revealed to us, which I think is, would be unacceptable. Um, uh, now, not everyone would agree to that. I mean, there are people that would argue that, at least from the scriptures, you could have a different interpretation of what's going on in the Eucharist. Um, I think, and, I, and, and roughly speaking, I can see that. I recognize the sort of, the reasonableness of different interpretations of John chapter six, of, of the, the, the institution narrative, of, uh, I recognize that there are other ways to read this. Um, there are not other ways to read the entirety of the Catholic tradition, um, particularly starting from very early day. I mean, it, it, it develops and becomes more specific as time goes on. But if you look back to the first few centuries of the church, I'm mean, talking, you know, 200 AD and, and the Didache even sort of in a lesser way uh, earlier, there is this continuity of teaching from that time. Uh, and so um, I, uh, so there is, there's that argumentation about it, uh, that it is, it is um, if, 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 it's kind of like, if we're wrong about this, we're wrong about a lot of things, um, and a lot, a lot of very foundational things. Um, I also think it's important because there is something very appealing and beautiful about how transubstantiation, what, what transubstantiation means about how God wants to interact with us. Um, that there is a way in which uh, Jesus Christ wants to be near us, to be present to us in a most powerful and profound way, and wants to make himself, help, make himself accessible to us in a way that is, you know, kind of when you get your head around it, mind-boggling. Um, there are elements of that that would still be present in other interpretations of what's going on in, 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 in the Eucharist if you didn't, if, you know, other, other Christian argumentations about what's going on in transubstantiation. But I think the fullness of what comes with the notion of there being a fully real presence of Jesus Christ, of his glorified body that we are able to receive and consume, and the, the way in which that physical act brings with it an overflow and empowering of grace is uh, very compelling and very beautiful and very fitting. So I don't think there's a proof of that that falls into that, 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 that layer where I can't, I can't prove it had to be that way. Um, but there's something very fitting and beautiful about, uh, about the fact that this is how God chose to share, uh, help to, one, what, this is one of the primary pathways in which God just chose to share his life with us. Thank you, Father. Absolutely. Uh, for all of that. Thank you, God.